Well, happy February, everyone. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. Finally February, as they say on February 1st, uh, finally here. Uh, Doug Badger from Minneapolis, where in February, normally the first weekend of February, coldest weekend of the year historically. And uh, came a little early over this. Yesterday, it was nine below. Today, only one below. So, you know, we're hanging in there. Moving up in the uh, world. Yeah, yeah. Heating it up. <clears throat> is this uh, is this the polar vortex for you guys? I saw oh, something I that this, there's a polar vortex moving through, which still yeah, don't I th- fully understand. But give it a name, sure. Let's let's call <laughs> it. You know, after that 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 polar, what was that movie that Tom Hanks was in? The polar polar, polar vortex express. express. <laughs> polar <laughs> express. That did well. Uh, uh, let's do the same with the weather. How, how are things there in West Michigan, Dan? It's Toasty? also quite cold. Um, you know, low teens, but yeah. Well, fine. you know, around here, we're, we're not just wannabe meteorologists, even though we do think the weather is sort of one of the things we do share, or in other words, take in common. Um, <laughs> but today we're going to be uh, on our Faith Wednesday conversation, where many days of the of the week we have different conversations. We'll talk politics on Tuesday. We'll talk faith on Wednesday. We'll talk science and economics on Thursday. We'll talk random stuff on Mondays and Fridays when necessary. Today, uh, as we talk about faith, we're going to talk about the power of Christian nationalism in the United States. We, uh, sort of uh, make a big announcement about our, our uh, some resources that we're putting out on all of this, uh, and want to provide some helpful advice, some tips, some uh, input on what uh, you can do and what uh, churches can do, especially to be involved in combating Christian nationalism. And we'll talk a bit about what it is, what Christian nationalism is. But Dan, uh, tell us about what we got coming, what this uh, what this the big announcement of our uh, specialized podcast is. Yeah, well, uh, as many people might know, we went on tour during the election cycle, traveling the country, trying to uh, tell people about the dangers, the threats of Christian nationalism and holding these seminars on uh, what we can do about it. And so we recorded all of that content and uh, we've distilled it down into podcast form. And so we're launching a podcast series called Confronting Christian Nationalism. And it uh, it takes from the interviews that we captured uh, and used in these seminars and it also relies heavily on the voices of Christian nationalists, people in power and uh, people with influence who uh, brazenly just call themselves Christian nationalists, say, yeah, we should be a Christian nationalist country. Uh, We let you hear in their own words what they mean by things like that. And so uh, the podcast, we listen to a lot of their voices, and then we listen to experts talking about what this means for the church, what this means for democracy, and uh, what people can do about it. And so uh, we've got a little trailer here we could play. Uh, it's just an audio trailer because it's a podcast. Um, we'll yeah, play that. Let me we'll, just, let me we'll just, just say something about that. What you know, We do this regular podcast. So some of you might be saying, well, I don't know, you guys already do a podcast, and today you're talking about <laughs> Christian nationalism. How is this different? Here's how it's different. Th- this standalone podcast is its own set of, um, of episodes on this topic that you can subscribe to separately from all the rest of our feeds. So if you have a friend or somebody in a, in a church or a neighbor or a stranger on the bus and you want them to just listen to, to that thing because the topic of Christian nationalism matters to you and you want them to be helped out, informed, understand what's up, they can just subs- they can subscribe just to that feed, just to that podcast. Um, and then it takes them 
Uh, Dan, how long are each episodes as they're as they're coming together? Are they they're about thirty to forty minutes? So pretty, uh, you know, doable length. You know, one yeah, sitting, bite size. Real, real little shorties for us around here. You know, little little <laughs> snack, a little snack, only forty minutes. You know, yeah. um, where today, you know, we'll, I don't know, we might spend an hour just on one portion of what we would uh, do. You know, in uh, thirty minutes in in this podcast. So, it's more condensed. It's more targeted. It's more straightforward. And we're really excited about it. Uh, we think you're going to like it. It has much more dynamism even than what we do in, in our typical live streams and podcasts. So I uh, want you to get yourselves um, uh, uh, you know, excited about it and ready to share it with other people. And uh, we, we like to go long form and we like to also put things together that are a little bit more punchy, which includes our curriculum that we have on our website for small groups and churches to utilize and all that. And we'll, we'll talk about some of that as we go through the conversation today. But uh, yeah, Dan, give us uh, give us a little a little taste. Yeah, here we go. Do you support the United States becoming a Christian nationalist country? Yeah, I do. I do. Welcome to Confronting Christian Nationalism, a podcast that allows you to hear the voices of Christian nationalism and those who oppose this dangerous movement. The church is supposed to direct the government. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. When our patriotism starts to ask us to sacrifice our theological views, that's no longer patriotism. That's nationalism. In November, we're going to take our state back. My God will make it so. The voices of dissent are removed. Right? The people who remain are more radicalized. Obey the laws of the government because God is ordained. What happened at the insurrection was not just a few Christian flags and a couple of crosses in a big crowd, but the very point of the spear. This is about as Christian nationalist of a message as I think you're going to see. Thank you for allowing the United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists, the globalists, and the traitors within our government. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray. Yeah, yeah there we go. <laughs> Uh, that's going to be, uh, and and then you know it's it's that's uh, with some great content, and um, I think Dan, you know, I think overall our Christian nationalism training is uh, accurate and uh, insightful, helpful, and um, and generous in the important way, right? It makes sure that people who would hold to Christian nationalist views could listen to our podcast and say, "You got us right." Those are the things that we say and we believe. Mm -hmm. And then we can have the right disagreements and, and arguments about whether Christian nationalism should be part of the United States. Uh, I think it should not. I think we should confront Christian nationalism as it is and dispel it. Yeah. Other people think, no, we should look at it as it is and embrace it. And that's a really different way to have the conversation than what typically happens, which is, the people opposed to Christian nationalism, you know, in just a casual conversation, I used to be this way, will just dismiss it or demonize it. And the people who hold to Christian nationalism will say that those who resist it are just godless people that hate, you know, the foundations of America and the true, mm -hmm. the true uh, America. And none of that gets us where we need to be in a, in a more helpful and healthy uh, conversation. So yeah, this one of the big things I we, hope is that way. Yeah, we really didn't want to make straw men and knock them down. We wanted to give the best presentation of their arguments and then confront those arguments and say, no, this is what you say. We disagree, and this is why. And so we've got some great experts. Uh, you heard the voices of Amanda Tyler, who is in charge of the Joint Baptist Commission uh, for Religious Freedom. 
And uh, you heard Kristen Dumay in there who wrote the great book, Jesus and John Wayne, that talks a lot about how we got to this place. So we've got you know historians and sociologists and writers all offering their perspective. Really good stuff. So do we have a do we have a launch date yet for that tasty little podcast? Uh, we don't. It's it's about ready, but we got to just talk about you know yeah. when we want to drop it and how we are going to promote and, it and all those and how details. we're going to do it. But soon, yeah, and very soon, soon and right. very soon. There's going to be a new place for you, to, a new podcast for you to subscribe to. Um, yeah, it's one that's going to come. How, how many episodes are going to be in that lo- in that package? I think it'll be four or five initially, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe we'll you know keep putting out a few here and there yeah. as well. And we'll see. This is some of the work that we're going to be doing right here. This won't be the last time we put out a specialized podcast on some of the regular content that we also generate and produce. So keep your eyes open for that. But for today, let's talk a little bit about Christian nationalism. What churches specifically can do? How we can engage in it little biography here. Five years ago, 10 years ago, people were talking about Christian nationalism. They were talking about it in the church spaces and church leader spaces. And I know some pastors who were big into it. And I used to think, come on, that it's not that big of a deal. It's, It's the kind of thing that fringy people in America believe, fringy church people believe, folks that don't take seriously the history of the United States and use it to flame uh, a narrative of, you know, persecution of the churches, that churches don't have the rightful place anymore, and they're living fantasifully in a world that used to exist. I, I think those descriptions are true. I think where, where that my dismissal of it was totally off and wrong was that it was fringe and no one was going to pay any attention to it. Instead, what's happened over the last 10 years is it has become more centralized in whole political movements in the United States. And it's crucial to recognize as we do in the podcast and the training and everything else, that Christian nationalism is essentially a political movement that uses the language and the tools of religion, in this case, Christianity, to advance its political ends. So uh, I now find myself and Dan in our work, we spend our time talking much more about Christian nationalism than I ever thought anyone uh, should uh, because I think that the circumstance has definitely has definitely changed. Yeah, and there's a fine line between wanting to uh, avoid giving something oxygen, you know, giving airtime to something that's harmful but fringe that you hope if uh, you just ignore it, it will go away on its own. But as we heard from uh, our friend Rob Shank, one of the lessons of uh, you know 1930s Germany not to make this comparison, but one of the lessons we can draw is to mm-hmm. speak up early and speak up strongly before something gets really bad. And we've yeah. seen signs that there's been a tipping point with Christian nationalism in America to where it went from this fringe thing to something that uh, you know is in the highest levels of government, people that are elected officials or members of the uh, you know, presidential administration, using Christian nationalism um, yeah. as a weapon against others. And so that's when uh, you know we kind of said, hey, we've got to start talking about this. Churches need to pay attention. And one of the helpful things for me was uh, from Amanda Tyler. She, she talks about Christian nationalism and the definition. It's not patriotism. You can love your country. You can love America. It's not Christianity. It's yeah. not just good people going to church and you know doing their thing. It's the conflation of the two, and it's when 
your patriotism asks you to give up your values, to set aside your values for the sake of the nation, then it slips into nationalism, then it gets harmful. Yeah, that's so well said. Uh, and we heard in the, in the little clip that we played there, the voices, as you said, of elected officials, people in the United States Congress, the former um, attorney general of the United States, uh, former presidents, saying things that are statedly Christian nationalist. So it's one thing to have a pastor or a, people like you and I hold or, or, or stand against Christian nationalism. It's something else to have elected officials use the power of their office and the power that they have to make laws holding to Christian nationalism. And that's also a place where it's really different. We're not talking about people practicing their, their faith in America. In fact, if you want to practice your faith better, I would suggest you would resist Christian nationalism. It's the more <laughs> yeah. Christian way to be. It's really about the use of the power of the mechanisms of power in the United States in order to advance Christian nationalist uh, belief. So a, a lot of people will say, look, I, I'm against Christian nationalism. Not totally sure what it is, right? They just know it's the kind of thing that... Um, were we, we oppose, but if you asked them to describe why it's a problem, how it works, they really can't. You know, it's maybe like how we think about monkeypox. I really don't want monkeypox. Not sure what it is, how you get it, or but I don't want it. I just know that it's it's no good. That can sort of get you along, and a lot of people have been comfortable getting along with that kind of view of Christian nationalism. Like, look, let's just let's not act like you know America's some big Christian nation. So, but if we don't, sometimes, and as long as that, that works for you, fair enough. But what I believe has happened to a lot of us in this country is that the people who advocate for Christian nationalism have a much more precise use of the term. And those of us who oppose it have a much more casual view of the term. And normally when that's the case, the people that have a more level of precision tend to advance their cause more so than the people who resist it with with a little less definition. Mm -hmm. So without boring people, I'm going to give you a little framework of Christian nationalism, refer you to our podcast to understand how it got here and who supports it and what the narrative is that allows these um, assertions to, to take place. And then we will talk about in this, in our conversation today, what churches specifically can do. So I, I've, been cobbling together this list of five characteristics that make up Christian nationalism. In some ways, these can maybe feel a little dry or a little, um, a little theoretical, a little academic, um, but just, but they're not, right? This is re really the stuff people say. So when I think about my uh, friends who are Christian nationalists and hold the Christian nationalist views and believe that Christian nationalism is good for America and good for their religious expression, I think they would agree with these statements as well. So uh, I boil them down to, to five. And, you know, when, when every time somebody shows up with a list of four or five, you know, I get, I get skeptical. I'm like, well, how come there weren't three and why are there not seven? Like, what's going on with your little list? So <laughs> take a list for what it's worth. Now, right? Do they all is, start with the letter P or did you vary from the that. pastor? <laughs> I, I did resist that temptation as a, as a memory device. All right, but uh, so so one of the affirmations that people make in Christian nationalism when they hold to it is this basic storyline that the United States of America was founded as a Christian nation. 
that when it came together as a union, it was a Christian nation. And then they'll say, we still are or we weren't, but this affirmation is really important. And this is a thing worth, worth talking about. We'll get to it later. So, but that's one of the affirmations, that it started as a Christian nation, and if we're not one now, that's because something's fallen from our stated intention from the beginning. The second, which goes along with it is, not only was it started as a Christian nation, but America is exceptional in the fact that God has created something in the United States to accomplish something through the United States to fulfill God's purposes in the world. So started as a Christian nation and is exceptional. And when they say exceptional, American exceptionalism, this crowd doesn't mean we have really great natural resources. We have a really great constitution. We have a really a diverse population, unlike other nations, right? They're not talking about that. They're saying the exception is that as a nation, the United States is unique in American history, along with the nation of Israel, to be fulfilling God's ultimate purposes in the world. Right. So the role that God has is unique. <laughs> yeah, there are two nations in the history of the world that have been chosen and birthed by God, Israel and America, which is convenient since we're here in America. It's, it's like, it yeah, of course out. it's us. Turns out it's us. We're the chosen. Oh, good for us. Good for us. Thank you, everybody. Uh, so Christian Nation started with an exceptional purpose ordained by God to fulfill God's purposes in the world. And thirdly, that Christians in America are the custodians of our nation's history. Others are welcome. They can participate. But the custodians of America are Christians or the Judeo-Christian narrative, right? If you've heard about people say, we have a Judeo-Christian heritage, our laws come from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Therefore, the Judeo, the Jewish Christian narrative should be the custodians of the United States. Atheists, of course, welcome. Always had Muslims, of course. Always had Hindus, for sure. Always had people of of Asian uh, expressions of, of spirituality and Taoism. Yes, but Christians are the ones that really care for the country and hold mm -hmm. it closely. Yeah. It's Christian like that. Others welcome, but you can feel it when people are like, man, you get a Muslim member of Congress or an atheist for a president. I mean, we've had a bunch of them, but they don't say that they are. That makes people really uncomfortable because they believe somehow that Deep down, the Judeo-Christian narrative is responsible for America. So exceptional narrative started this way. Christians and Judeo-Christians are the custodians of it. And that Christians should have a preferential privileged place in the United States, especially mm -hmm. as it relates to laws. That you need to specially consider how does this impact Christianity? when you think about laws. The Supreme Court has been saying things that sound and feel an awful lot like that. And then the fifth that goes with it is that in recent years, Christians have suffered unjustly because they've been marginalized from their intended place and therefore they have no alternative but revolutionary zeal to return the country back to its roots. Mm -hmm. So these five sort of work as little locking ideas that hold together, right? You have 
the country started this way. It has an exceptional cause given by God. Christians then are supposed to have the ultimate responsibility for the country that privilege should go to Christianity so that it gets a pass. Like, just think about the laws that are passed about prayer at school. People are totally up for having prayer at school if you're a Christian nationalist. In fact, you'd love it, whether it's the football game or during morning announcements. But if it was an Islamic prayer, no, 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 no. We don't want an Islamic prayer. We want the laws to support the Christian prayer because it's a Christian country and then we can move forward from there. And then things haven't gone well. And so Christians have been marginalized and harmed and therefore Christianity um, is under assault in the United States. So those five things tend to exist. Now you can watch our long form training hour and a half long and you give some more details on how people got into this and how it's held together and what the theological underpinnings are, which is really important if you work in church spaces. And you can listen to the podcast, of course, because that's all helpful. But if you take those five, I think there's some responses that churches can have and should and should deal with it. Fundamentally, if churches or faith communities or individuals talking to other people about their Christian faith want to deal with these issues, they're going to have to deal with those issues themselves, those five, and also the theological underpinnings that 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 go with them. So, uh, Dan, you want to say anything else about that kind of framing before I jump into my next list of five, <laughs> which is five uh, five uh, actions that churches can take in ways? No, can... I think that's a good framework, and it points out that um, there's a there's a point in our podcast and interviews where we're talking to Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. And he says that within their context, these people are not crazy. They're using the framework, the theological frameworks and the socialized frameworks that uh, they've been given. Yep. And within that framework, this makes sense. You know, Dana's in the in the chat and saying, Ick, wow, like, yeah, we agree. This it takes when you're standing outside of it, it seems just completely wild, and it's hard for me to wrap my head around how do people get to this point. Uh, but I think if we're going to effectively address it and talk about it and confront it, uh, we have to understand it a little bit from the inside. So that's a good, helpful frame. Yeah, and, and look, it's it's what we see in the country. You Maybe people were shocked if they were watching the vote for the Speaker of the House, you know, a couple of weeks ago when that was going on and C-SPAN and other news outlets were playing that stuff live. And they heard the prayers being prayed by chaplains, United States Congress chaplains, these people whose ministry assignment is to care for the members of Congress as, religi as religious leaders. They're sent there to care for these people and are paid by the federal government to do this job. Some people don't even know that there's chaplains who care for government uh, elected officials, like mm -hmm. there's chaplains in the military. Well, at least in the military, most often, they're supposed to have chaplains that work across religious traditions. So whatever someone's faith tradition is, they could be cared mm -hmm. for. But in, the, in Congress, in, in the House and in the Senate, those chaplains they're always Christian and they right. pray these prayers and they'll start a meeting. They'll start up the, the you know, a congressional meeting, yeah, a meeting with of the federal government <laughs> in Jesus name. It drives me crazy. Like yeah. we should not be doing this stuff. 
but it just becomes the, the context that people are in where it's really hard to even notice that that's what's going on. Or you'll have fights about should a courthouse have the Ten Commandments posted in the courtroom or in the lobby or in the official, you know, judicial space. Well, it's never, you know, some Taoist writing that's up there. No one's ever arguing about that because that's not even a consideration. It's is it going to be something from the Jewish or Christian text that should be that should be taken? Mm-hmm. In fact, when people of other traditions try to put their expression of faith into the public sphere through the government, Christian nationalists freak out. And a lot yeah. of us in the country become uncomfortable with it. You know, it, it doesn't surprise a lot of people to think that they're their their good old you know democrat elected representative is going to think about Matthew 5 and love your neighbor as you love yourself when they go to pass laws they feel really great about that well m- my elected officials you know Ilan Omar I don't want her taking her religious faith of Islam and saying well from my religious text it says this therefore I want a law that's based on that text a lot of people don't even recognize if it's Christian or Jewish stuff that that's odd until yeah. it becomes something of another tradition. They're like, okay, hang on a minute. Is that is that what we do? Is that how we do it? Mm-hmm. Because it becomes the water that we roll around in. So when you sort of notice it, maybe as Dan is and somebody and other people are hearing this, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's what they, like when you say it that plainly, it kind of feels gross. You know, you know what it reminds yeah. me of, Dan? It reminds me of seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade sex ed class that I had to take. Oh, no. Where, where when you're like going? in a like when you're in a classroom and your sixth or seventh grade teacher is describing those things that your body might find interesting <laughs> in a moment of, you know, heated passion doesn't sound good when it's just described in a clinical set in a in a uh, a clean <laughs> setting of your sixth grade, you know, health class. Good Lord. Sounds horrible, right? Um, it's, it's, it's like scared straight for, you know, sex ed. That sometimes when you just put the, the clear light on these things, it shows it in a way that doesn't feel quite so quite so positive. So this right. is one Even of the for things the that happens more when innocuous you talk about these things, issues. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, so tell us, uh, We've talked a, a bit about what Christian nationalism is, how someone might arrive at it. We expand on all these ideas in the podcast series that's uh, coming out shortly. Uh, big question we always end up talking to people about uh, when we're on tour is, okay, great, how do I help someone out of that mindset? How do I help my grandparents, my family member, my friends... Because this is dividing households, it's dividing communities. How do we help people escape this? Yeah. All right, so I've got five, five pieces of advice here. The first is, if you're going to be someone who's going to engage in this, in a church, as a church leader, as a church community, or an individual that's in conversation, expand your own understanding of what Christian nationalism is and why people hold to it. It's really helpful, almost I would say crucial, that we understand why and how a belief functions 
for other people who believe differently than we do. Not just what they believe, not just what is Christian nationalism, and I don't understand why you think that, but what function does that belief have? And to understand it deeply. So expand your own understanding of the history of America. Like when you take point number one that we listed as one of the characteristics that America was started as a Christian nation. You will end up in a conversation where someone will say, you know, America was started as a Christian nation. And then you'll say, no, it wasn't. And they'll say, oh, yes, it was. And then here you go, right? <laughs> and understanding the history of America is really helpful. There were parts of a, the United States, what we now call the United States of America, that when they were started as colonies, they were started as religious exile communities, right? Before the union was formed, before there was a revolution from England and there was a constitution of a set of United States of America, some of these colonies were started in a narrative that said, we want a safe place for Christians. Some Christian traditions were persecuted in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s around the world. And so they came to America seeking religious freedom from England and from other European forces. So they came to the United States to start standalone communities where only certain Christian people could be full members of that colony. Right. Okay, so when some people say things like, well, America started as a Christian nation, what they're getting back to is a pilgrim narrative. Like, no, when the pilgrims came, like they're Quakers and other people, and they all like, everybody had to like be in on the deal, right? There's, there's whole parts of Pennsylvania that have this kind of vibe to them, you know, where like, hey, this town or this community used to 300 years ago, only Christian people could live here. Mm -hmm. So some parts of the United States were framed as religious colonies. But when the United States made the decision to become a nation, not a set of colonies, but a nation, it had to confront the question of Christian nationalism and it rejected it. So it said the United States as a country, this is sort of amendment number one, first amendment, will establish no religion, have no religious expectations on people. Mm -hmm. Maybe we used to in some places and didn't used to in other places in the United States, but we're not going to going forward. You know, Pennsylvania then was later started as a place of religious freedom and then had to say, okay, we're not going to do that religious stuff. We're not going to have the government, the federal government or the state government be putting religious demands on its citizenry. So the question, did this start as a Christian nation depends on what point you're starting from. So to expand your understanding, this, and I think the best explanation I've heard is there were movements to make the United States totally Christian. Mm -hmm. And then that was turned back, rejected when the country was formed as a nation. So try to expand our understanding on all of these factors and what, not only sort of what do people mean and how are they getting at it and how does it function in their life, but just literally what is the history of the United States and where did it come from? Another one that's helpful on this is just to know that some phrase like in God we trust or the Pledge of Allegiance. These were things that were introduced into the United States lexicon in the 1950s right. in response to communism. And the whole argument about should there is communism going to be the future of world civilization or is 
not communism. In other words, the United States and other places where people hold to a faith. But that argument against communism in the 1950s in the United States, the solution to communism was not Christian nationalism. The solution to communism was freedom of religion in the United States, where the government has no opinion whatsoever about any of these matters. Not it's going to pick one religion or no religion. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on that has gotten us to the point where there's misconceptions and misunderstandings, where those five characteristics that we talked about uh, come out. So, so I think what's really important if you're going to engage this as a church or an individual is to be in the practice of expanding your own understanding, deepening your own, your own sense of what's up. Mm-hmm. Ready for number two? So ready. <laughs> I was ready. I was ready six minutes ago. Uh, distinguish between two groups. And look, anytime somebody tells you that that there's two groups of people in the world, you say to them, look, there's people, there's there's two kinds of people, those who make the world into two groups and those who don't. But in this case, <laughs> two groups. Group one. Distinguish between those who intentionally believe things about Christian nationalism, whether they're for it or against it. Those who like have a well thought out, considered approach that they're projecting. I'm in that camp as a full anti-Christian nationalist. Dan, you're in that camp as an anti-Christian nationalist. Uh, Jeff Sessions, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Donald Trump, these people are intentionally believing we should be a Christian nation, right? Well, we're one group. What makes us one group is we intentionally believe these things. We've thought them through. We have a point we're making. We're countering that point with other people's points. And we ha- and that, that's where we stand. That's one group. The second group are those who just happenstantially believe things. It just, they're not sure why they believe it, but they do believe it. They believe it very deeply, but not on purpose. These could be people who are accidental Christian nationalists, like, well, I don't know, I thought the country was a Christian nation and we should like make sure that we hold to our roots. Or somebody who said, come on, man, this wasn't a Christian nation. I mean, I, I don't know all that stuff about like how it all came together or how the First Amendment plays into it or what the Constitutional Congress was about, but nah, we're not a Christian nation. Like, like that's they, they don't have a rationale and a reason for it. Here's why I think that's important. Because... If you attribute intentionality to people whose beliefs are happenstantial, they have no idea why you're arguing with them the way you are. They're just like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going on. And if you think that people are just happenstantially believing this, but they actually have deep intention and it's rooted into a whole belief system in which this is a crucial part of other important things in their life, your happenstantial response to them won't work. So to distinguish in a church community, especially, hey, some of you, let's talk about Christian nationalism in and around here in a way for those of you who really think a lot about it. If you're really opposed to it, let's help you be more informed about it. And if you're really supportive of it, let's help you understand another perspective on it. But if you're happenstantial, you're going to treat that in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. And this, this is true. Look, this is just a truism across the board on any conversation you're talking about. A lot of us have beliefs that we don't know why we have them, where they came from, or what function they play in our lives, but they're there. We're just not very attentive to them. 
that's a really different way of thinking and the information you're going to take in and a change of heart or change of mind comes differently with those beliefs than the ones that you've constructed very intentionally. So expand your own understanding and then recognize that there's different kinds of people and put together opportunities and options and conversation points for people who are intentionally believing and are happenstantially believing. Mm -hmm. Number three, be gentle and clear. Apply just the right amount of force on these things, right? Gentleness really matters when you're talking about these, these issues because Christian nationalism, shockingly, to a lot of people when they're, if they support it, when they hear someone opposing it, it goes to some deep core belief that's attached to a whole lot of other things that they didn't know it was even attached to. All of a sudden, they're defending things and they're like, I don't even know why I'm defending this, but somehow <laughs> it doesn't sound right what you're saying, right? So gentleness doesn't mean not strong. It doesn't mean, it, it just means approach it with care, right? And then be really clear about what you're asking. Be really clear about what the call is for someone. Because what people hear regularly, if you're in the Christian nationalist ecosystem somehow in your life or world, or you, it's, it's intentional or, or happenstantial. And you hear someone say, we got to get rid of all this. What they hear, what they think you're saying is, we should get rid of God. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> like It just feeds that persecution complex as well. Like, oh, see, totally. they, they hate Christians. Yep. And, and, and it's not at all what you mean, but if someone um, has yet to sort of see the landscape, it doesn't land in the same way. So be gentle and clear and apply the right amount of force. What I've watched a lot of pastors do is be overly gentle and not clear. And I've watched a lot of activists, crowd we're in, apply a lot of clarity and not a lot of gentleness. We uh, we bought a a piece of furniture for our our family room, and like college students, we went to IKEA, which meant that we bought this thing in a series of boxes, big flat heavy boxes that then I laid out on the ground and for three hours put together this this piece. And they have these, you know, in IKEA they they do these little uh, diagrams. Like there's there's not words; it's just it's just artwork yeah. uh, that shows you how to do it. And they have some symbol on there for like when you're screw, when you're tightening with their little Allen wrench or with your screwdriver, you're going to tighten that that bolt in there or whatever. And they'll put this thing on there about like be gentle, right? Uh, like use the right amount of force. I think there may have even been some words on there that said like don't over tighten. That right amount of force is really important, especially in church communities. Like it, it doesn't do anybody any good to be ultra clear on this issue and then have people say, that's a church I don't want to be part of anymore. You can be super clear and very inclusive of people who still hold those beliefs. It's my belief, it's, it's my conviction. The only way people's beliefs change is inside of a community that reorients belief. So if you're not in a community doing it, you have a much less chance of, uh, of making a shift. So the right amount of force is really important. And so is clarity. And these two things really, really work together. And the more you understand your own, uh, the, the deeper understanding you have of Christian nationalism, which is why we have trainings and we have podcasts and we have 
downloadable curriculum and we have interviews and we have all these resources to help you do that, it really helps. All right, number four, break the no talk rules about religion and politics in your, in your church. So many churches just won't talk about it. I'm not talking about partisanship. I'm not talking about saying you should vote for this person or that person. By politics, I mean our collective way of life that is supported and drawn out by the use and the participation of the federal and state and local governments. That's politics. Politics isn't just how we choose to live our lives together. I mean, I know definitionally that's what it is. But by politics, I mean not only how we live together, but what role does the government play in that? You know, the government's the largest employer in America. Like more people work for the government than work for any other employer. There's a lot of governments around us. To act like it doesn't exist and to act like it's not a real thing or to say, those are things we don't talk about here. We don't talk about Bruno here. Those are, that's not helpful. So we have to break the no talk rules. And to do so, pick the place and time to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I don't think for most pastors, the best way to talk about Christian nationalism is in the seven to 35 minutes your community allots you for a sermon. Maybe once a year, fair enough. But a passing comment or a a whole sermon just on Christian nationalism probably is not the best place to do. I'm not saying you should hide it. Go ahead and do it. I'm just suggesting it's not all that effective. Partially because most of our sermons are designed as one-way one-way monologue communication. Something like what I'm doing here, right? Just got five points in the screen in front of me and I'm just talking it straight. And whatever you're thinking, maybe you can pop it in the chat. Maybe I'll look at it. Maybe I won't, but this is a one-way deal, you know, and then I pause for a minute and get a little input and then go again. That form of communication, it's not always the best way to help people actually learn and grow on things. Parenthetically, if you're interested in that, I've written a whole book called Preaching in the Inventive Age, which talks about the dialogical (laughs) form of preaching where we can move away from the monologue and the speeching style of communication for our churches. But I promise you, all the churches are not doing that. Um, So churches or or sermons are not always the best place. Find the additional places where you can talk about it small groups, book studies, uh, set aside conversations, 25 minutes after something, 20 minutes before something, set aside a time where the people who care about this can talk about this. Because this is the other thing, talking to these about these things to people who don't care about them, it also doesn't help. So finding a way for people to engage in the conversations in ways that are helpful and meaningful for them is the best thing that you can do. Yeah. I'll add a caveat to that. I think while the sermon might not be the best place to change someone's mind about Christian nationalism, silence from the stage or silence from the pulpit is often, uh, people fill in their own gaps with that. Uh, it can be it can be enabling to the Christian nationalist voices in the community that are having these conversations in Bible studies and before the church gathering or whatever. And then when there's silence from the stage, silence from the pulpit, people make the assumption that oh, okay, this is this is what we believe around here. 
Extremely so well said. A clear statement from from a pastor uh, from the stage is also helpful. Yeah, incorporate it somehow into the other statements you have. Look, what I, I've had the privilege of being in a lot of churches. I've pastored churches for a long time, and I speak at churches, and we travel around, and I've been in a lot of them. The announcement moments tell you as much about what the church cares about as the sermon, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> so That's very true. Uh, a, 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 an announcement person or a or a church leader or pastor or somebody who's facilitating that has some cachet in the church uh, service saying something like, hey, uh, you know, next Thursday, there's this conversation that we have about Christian nationalism and I found it super helpful and it's, it really seems like it's important, is, is meaningful to this church. So if that's something you're interested in, you can find out more information. That kind of statement says a whole lot mm-hmm. as much as, whatever finely crafted statements that somebody puts in their either mental or written text uh, that's going to go into their sermon. So now I'm going to do a little bit of my church consulting side. If if you (laughs) want to tell people what your church is up to and what you care about, uh, spend more time thinking about your announcements because that's really where socialization happens as much as it happens in the sermon. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Because strangely, and I mean, I'll preach you on this one. Strangely, the sermon tends to feel like what the pastor thinks about things and the announcements tend to tell you what the church thinks about things. Mm. So I would encourage people to think more deeply about what they do in their announcements. <laughs> uh, there could be a whole, a whole thing about this. Uh, or, 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 not, or not just maybe the announcement time, but where the pastor could allude to something, you know, uh, in the sermon that's announcement-like. Yeah. You know, or just say like, hey, I was listening to something or I did this curriculum. Like there's just a way to mention it without turning it into the, into the, the sermon space. Partly because it gets back to this happenstantial and intentional believing people. Um, it really lands differently. If you're a happenstantial believer in in or against Christian nationalism, you're not all that tuned in to the things people are talking about. <laughs> like, you don't even, like, right? It's that's that's part of the nature of a hap, any of our happenstantial beliefs that we just happen to believe this stuff. And you're like, oh, is that what you're talking about? Okay, yeah, no, no, I got you. Yeah, I'm I'm back with you. Where if you're tuned in because it's one of your intentional beliefs that you've crafted up. You just know the code words, you know how to listen for it, you can hear it, and you're and you're pinging on it. And that's partly why moving it from uh, the, the sort of drive-by or d- even direct clarity statement in a sermon is much more helpful if you can find additional ways to break these no-talk rules. And I'll just say one more point on this one before I get to the last fifth point. And that is, let other people talk about these things as well. One of the best ways to move people from intentional belief or happenstantial belief, either one of those, to a different belief, is to ask them to talk even longer about what they believe. Mm -hmm. I know it's counterintuitive to some people. They think if you let people go on and on, they're just going to harden into their beliefs. But any of us who have a belief that doesn't really hold water... The longer you you have to expand on it, the more you, oh. uh. The best thing you can say to someone is, say more about that. (laughs) I don't have more to say about that. I think America is a Christian nation and Christians are being persecuted here. Or be like the annoying first grader. Just, why? 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 (laughs) Why? Well, because we're a Christian nation. Why? (laughs) Why? Why? Just because. Just because. You know, any of us that have have been driven to our knees by our our children, we're like, well, there is not a reason. It's just how we do it. 
fair enough. That's, that's, I mean, that frankly, that's most things, you know, we, we back in a reason we didn't start with a reason. Yeah. All right. Number five, and this is the big one. I won't, doesn't mean I'll spend all the time on it, but this is important. And that's normalize the conversation about Christian nationalism as an act of discipleship or faith formation or whatever phrase you use. Make it a part of discipling people or finding, helping people find their way in, into their faith. I think it's important to make it clear that being American is not synonymous with being Christian. Like there's a lot of ways to get there. There was Christianity before there was America and there's Christianity in places that aren't America and it doesn't have anything to do with it. Christianity is not nationalism and no nation can actually be Christian. That's not how the word functions. That's not the meaning of Christian. So there's a lot of things you can do about where our allegiances lie and what it means to be a, a, a follower of a particular way. If you're Christian as I am, you want people to follow in the way of Jesus. And that way of Jesus means that it's about the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of Jesus' day and not the kingdom of Caesar or the kingdom of David and Solomon, right? The the Christian narrative is actually our most helpful place to go to defeat Christian nationalism. It's Jesus' teaching that all people, Gentiles who are under Caesar, and Jews who are under David and Solomon's you know, authority through the temple structure, both of those communities are called into the kingdom of God, where, every, where everyone joins. Can, can you hear that, Vang? Yeah. Where, where you're joined together where everyone participates. And the kingdom of God then is the alternative to nationalism or ethnicism or racism. That... That's how that that's why Jesus says, I come to declare the kingdom of God. The, you know, the word good news, it means the proclamation of the deliverer, right? The the announcement. It's a borrowed phrase, the phrase the the good news, from what the Romans would do when they would come into town call the community, to the citizens together and announce the good news from Caesar, right? So Jesus is like, oh yeah, you got, your, you got your good news from Caesar? I want to tell you about the good news from God. And then some religious people would say things like, well, it's only our people that should be included here. And Jesus is like, no, 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 God's got, God's got children all over. Mm-hmm. Whether you're children of Abraham or children of the other, everyone's involved. This is, the, this is the narrative of Christianity, that Christianity does not present itself well as nationalism. Frankly, Christianity doesn't present it well as a, itself well as a religion. The, the, the teachings of Jesus, the way of Christianity, the things you see in the New Testament, all that kind of stuff doesn't function well as a religion. You have to do a lot <laughs> of retrofitting to make that thing go as a religion, right? It's like you're, you're, you're going to travel to Europe and you only have the kind of plug that has three prongs on it. You're like, I know I'm going to get over there and they're going to have those you know, sideways plugs and I have to get an adapter to put on to connect this plug to that outlet. And theology is basically the creation of the adapters. Hmm. Right. So, and, and look, we've all got piles of adapters sitting around just, you know, in our lives, just one little cord and cable that's supposed to connect another thing. And I don't even have that thing anymore. And we just, you know, we got a collection of cables around our lives. Theology is like that. We have all of these little connectors that are supposed to make sense of this story, then over to this story and over to this story. And they often don't fit very well together. You get a lot of buzz in the system when you use an adapter. I could push this metaphor till the end of time. (laughs) 
Christianity doesn't work well as a religion, but it really doesn't work well as a national identity. Yeah. It's designed to be the opposite of a national identity. Mm -hmm. And to make that call, and that's the kind of thing you can put in your sermon. That's the kind of thing, that's the kind of groundwork you can lay. But look, Dan, I have talked to so many of my Christian nationalist friends who would be giving me a gigantic amen on all of that. And they would say, but America is a Christian nation and it has an exceptional place in the role and the work that God wants to do in the world is going to come through the yeah. United States. Like they're holding <laughs> both of these things, right? So normalize it as an act of discipleship, but also know that that teaching on the kingdom of God is not sufficient. You're not going to get there by not naming this. Mm -hmm. So in the midst of the discipleship act and what the kingdom of God is about, we also have to have some clarity and show where its rub is specifically in the calls to the United States being a, a Christian nation or not. Yeah. So those are the five uh, uh, pieces of advice that I have for churches and church leaders on this stuff. I'd love to dig down into some specifics with that last one, because one of my biggest frustrations and confusions is you read the words of Jesus and it's this wide, inclusive, welcoming movement. And Jesus is always you know, bringing in the people on the outside that have been left out. And the Christian nationalist movement in America is never about like, well, we're a Christian nation, so no one should go hungry. We're a Christian nation, so yeah, we should welcome the foreigner just like it says in our sacred text. How do you help someone to see their own scripture not in this isolationist way? I think that is so spot on and so hard to do actually because it's easy to then find yourself just conceding to the Christian call of this nation and say, okay, then if we're a Christian nation, we should fill in the blank. You know, <laughs> We should have a year of Jubilee and we should <laughs> share all things in common. And Jesus was a socialist and right, you could just go do all that. It, look, it doesn't matter how the New Testament church organized itself in relationship to how the United States federal government should arrange itself. There, they're not, it, it, I don't want to give in to the Christian nationalism impulse Yeah. by saying, well, then therefore, what we need to instead do is say, if you're motivated by this inclusive narrative of everyone having enough and no one needing to be afraid, this sort of, if you were to take the kingdom of God narrative about what would the world look like, you could take the Lord's Prayer, you could take the Sermon on the Mount, you take, and it tends to feel like that. You have enough love, you have enough resources, you have enough time, you have enough space, and you don't have to be afraid of yourself. You don't have to be afraid of God for sure. You don't have to be afraid of your enemy. You don't have to be afraid of, of nature. Like you can live in a way that's not afraid and that has sufficiency. So if that's what your call is, and that's what you're calling people to, and that's the human flourishing that you know can be possible, you don't want to give in to, so let's then, you know, force people to say that, you know, the, our tax policy should be more like Matthew 5. Um, and look, I know some people that I've supported for, for office, that are running for office that uh, currently that talk like that. And I'm, I get really, I get really, I'm like, uh, don't, don't start down that road. That is not the place. <laughs> That's not where we should be going. So how do you do this then? How do you say what's the role of the individual who cares about this whole narrative I was just going on about? And then that citizen or that lawmaker's relationship 
to the federal government. That's really important because not everybody holds to this. And if you only have the rationale for how the federal government should be or the state government or county government should be in relationship, if it only comes from your scripture and your text and that narrative, then you're into Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. So you have to have other supports, other rationale, other reasons so that you can say, look, here's what motivates me personally, but as a city, as a country, as a state, we're also committed to these other things and this thing I'm proposing for laws or how we're going to behave, it fulfills that other rationale as well. Mm -hmm. That's the secular part of the United States that you yeah. have to have that. I think so of it as like a Venn diagram and where there's overlap between your Christian views mm -hmm. and your humanist atheist friends views and your nice. Jewish friends views in that spot in the middle. Maybe that's where federal law can be put into place. Like, yeah, we all agree we should not, murder each other. Let's start there, you know? Yeah, remember in sixth grade or seventh grade after you left the awkward uh, health class and then you had to go into your social <laughs> studies class and you had to write a paper and the teacher suggested that or demanded that you have more than one source for your argument? Yeah. That, that notion and idea, that's <laughs> a really good one. Have more than one rationale for this, mm -hmm. right? Um, that are impulses need to come from other spaces as well. The founders of this country really worked hard on that. You can, and you can hear it. That's why you'll get sometimes where, you know, to borrow a music metaphor, you'll hear the, the, the key of Christian, but then you'll also hear the notes of humanism because they're, they're moving together, right? They're, because they're just recognizing this is how people are. Like people care about things for their religious purposes. Some people care about them for non-religious purposes. And we're going to bring all those people together. What you don't want to do as someone rejecting Christian nationalism is tell a bunch of Christian people that your Christianity is ridiculous. You need to leave it at the door and no one cares what your faith teaches you. Mm -hmm. First of all, that's not nice. Second of all, it doesn't work. <laughs> and third, it doesn't describe the reality of the world at all. Right. More people care about the things that were taught to them by those that they love and care about than they care about any policy about anything. It's just, it's just totally not true. So this gets really hard, but I get the point you were making earlier, Dan, where you want to push on the Christian nationalists to say, well, then if you think that we should be acting as a Christian nation, why aren't you acting very Christian? Well, then that gets to a lot of people's view of how Christians should be is really quite distorted. And especially in Christian nationalism, because it's more political theory than it is Christian. But there's a lot of people who see cruelty, abuse, and power as the thing of Christianity. Mm. Truly, that's that's their thing. I mean, for a lot of them, it goes back to, look, God's going to smite people at the end of life anyway. God's right. going to kill the sinner. So God's not going to care if we get a jump on that. <laughs> yeah. You know, this this kind of thing that that you say it that bluntly and people are like, oh, come on, nobody talks like that. Oh, no, no, no. People, people really do think that kind of stuff. You know, kill them all, let God sort it out. That kind of flippant yeah. comment that people make in war and other things. These are the... These are the narratives that tend to run through our Christianity and then it gets applied here. So when you run into the Christian nationalists who are about violence 
and are about us and not them and crusades and winning, at some point you have to say, look, the, the Christian narrative has always had this, right? You have Jesus saying to, his, to, to Peter of all people, right? To give you a little Bible lesson here. Peter, the closest disciple, the one who he calls the rock, the one who's the Pope, the one who's the leader of the church, all this stuff. What does Peter do? The night that Jesus is going to be arrested, takes out a sword and swings it at a person and cuts off the man's ear, maims the side of his face. That's the in the text. Why does the gospel, why do the gospels include that in the text? Because they want to say this kind of thing, this goes on. And Jesus says, put it away. That's not what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So it's there in as a story in order to be condemned as an action. It's not there as a story to be a playbook. Right. And yet people like who support guns and everything are like, no, Jesus is all like, you get the sword. And Peter had a sword. And like, those are cautionary tales. <laughs> right? Those are not <laughs> how to's. So, uh, the, the, right. This narrative, uh, as somebody who uses the Christian narrative to help understand my Christianity, the correctives are there. The New Testament is full of this stuff. The Apostle Paul is actually the most anti-Christian nationalist person you could find. He is arguing profusely against notions that we would now call Christian nationalism. And yet most Christian nationalists think the Apostle Paul and Jesus and Peter are on their side. So yeah, should Romans we get into 13, that and, yeah. and do Bibles? Yeah, Romans 13. And do Bible stuff? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you you know that old saying, which I think is true. It's a truism at least. Uh, guessing it seems to be true that you can't argue someone into you can't argue someone out of a belief that they weren't argued into in the first place so find mm -hmm. out the motivation of how they got their belief i think that's generally true we don't want to argue with it or not but a lot of people who if so to take that point is true if you use the bible as your rationale or if you know someone who uses the Bible as their rationale, then use the Bible to unrationale that, right? <laughs> it's the most helpful way to do it is to say, but that's not either what it says or the only thing it says or what it intends to say and to get into it. And I am shocked at how many Christian leaders don't want to use the Bible as the condemnation of Christian nationalism. Yeah. I get it. I see why, because they're like, look, we think that the Bible might be one of the tactics used by Christian nationalists, so we want to use other tactics. It's a, a misuse of the Bible by Christian nationalists is not a rationale for mm -hmm. anti-Christian nationalists to not use the truth about what's in the text and what's in the Bible and for people for whom that's important. And look, if the Bible's not important to you and you run into somebody for whom the Bible is important, you're coming from very different vantage points. Um, in fact, we, we should do a whole thing on like what the Bible says about Christian nationalism. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. There's a in little our, point. Yeah. Right. In our last few minutes, though, I'd love to talk about you know, when someone changes their mind about Christian nationalism, say they've been in a church where that's just the water they swim in, they change their mind about it. It's very easy for someone to find themselves on the outside of community. You start to change your mind about that. You start to change your mind about the exclusion of the LGBTQ community. You start speaking up about racism. Suddenly you find yourself on the outside of some of these mm -hmm. communities. And I'd love to talk about how the quote-unquote progressive church can be a more welcoming place for people who are leaving 
uh, more harmful communities. Because oftentimes, a person will be going through a deconstruction or whatever, and they'll say, yeah, but these liberals hate me. I'm not going to go to their totally. club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. so we've, we've demanded that people change. Your views are horrible. They're harmful. You should change. But we don't want to be friends with them. We don't want to like. Yeah. And you you raise an interesting question, um, like how long from the point of change is enough before you'll welcome someone in? Is it is it a week? Is it a year? Is it one day? Is it negative? A yeah, week? yeah, <laughs> yeah. One of the things we raised in the in the uh, on the training was to say to people, look, if you're serious about being inclusive churches. Will you allow people who hold the Christian nationalism to be part of your community? Or are you purifying your community where only certain people can be involved? This tends to push on those of us who are progressive, right? Because there's there's a kind of progressive that means you hold the, the progressive beliefs we hold. And then there's a kind of progressive that's inclusive to the degree that says, you don't have to believe what we all believe here. We're not looking for uniformity. We're looking for for community. That's hard for a lot of people because somewhere there's a line, right? There's some things that you're yeah. just like, look, you're out. When I was a pastor at a church, we um, we didn't have believing in God as a requirement. And that really bothered some people who were there. <laughs> They're like, I don't understand how I can go to a church where I can't look around and say, well, at least we have that in common. I'm like, yeah, you have to, if you're going to be here, you're in a church where there is not any single thing we all hold in common. What there is, is a network of commonality. Mm -hmm. You hold some things in common with them and some other things in common with them and some things with them. And that's how life works. That's what we have. There isn't, there is no center to the belief, right? I've done a bunch of writing about all this stuff and anybody's ever interested in that. But these non-center set belief systems uh, is really important. So one of the questions we have to ask if we're in a progressive community is, oh, is this a community for people who think progressively, fair enough. I mean, nothing wrong with that, right? There's there's whole communities for people that think conservatively. And like one of the rules of involvement is you think conservatively. And if you didn't start that way, we want you to end that way, mm-hmm. right? That's different than we're going to be a community that's going to involve the people who want to be part of this community here. So this is this is... This is difficult. And one of the questions is how long can someone be out of conformity? Uh, how long how, how long how long ago did did someone have to be out of conformity before they can be part of your community? So if they're a Christian nationalist, you know, like you said, is it is it a year? They had to go through a year of sobriety from Christian nationalism. <laughs> now they can be part of it. Is it a day? Uh, maybe yeah. next Thursday they're gonna drop that, but not yet. Maybe two years, maybe never. If they hold the Christian nationalism and just disagree with you on that from top to bottom and think we should go take over the government, can they be part of your of, of your community or not? These are these are intense questions that you really do have to have to answer. And it's normally not the random single entity that comes in, right? You know what it is? It's the person's spouse. What you know, somebody really loves being there and she loves this church, and her wife is like, Yeah, I'm not really into all that stuff. I kind of think this way. Well, are they welcome? Can they come together? Can they both mm-hmm. be members? Can they can they be part of it? Or someone's child or someone's parent that they want to come with or someone's friend or neighbor. Like there's some connection there. They're not just, you know, evil doers, wolves coming in sheep's clothing to devour your community. Not, it's not that at all. It's just like people are like, 
hey, my wife is super into this uh, church stuff. I actually think, you know, we should just, you know, let the Christians run the place. <laughs> like, <laughs> does that guy get to be involved? These are, these are, th this is the question that really, that this Christian nationalism stuff raises in the discipleship area. And that is, what do you mean by being Christian or something? What, one of the things I'm really afraid of that happens in this world a lot is it's easy to find yourself simply saying, these people aren't Christians. Christian nationalists, they're about a political movement and therefore their whole thing is fraudulent Christianity. They're not Christian. My own belief is we should not tell anyone else who proclaims to be Christian that they're not. It's not, Christianity is not a, a, a title that anyone else can take from you. They're not Oscar awards that you can revoke. <laughs> you can't take someone's Christianity from them if they claim it. It's theirs to have. And it's not only is that not something you should say to them, you shouldn't say it to yourself. I think we're much better off saying there are a variety of Christians. There were the kind of Jesus followers around Jesus, you know, before the term Christian was ever applied to anyone. The kind of Jesus followers around Jesus, one of them was a denier, never knew the man, tried to cut a guy's head off hours earlier. Another one is a betrayer who turned him over to the authorities to be executed. And another one was a non-believer in the resurrection. Like there were only 12 disciples and one quarter of them were deniers, betrayers, and, and non-believers. Right? Yeah. Okay. And then you so, had zealots, you had like different factions of what you know, role religion should play in the world. And yeah, it's totally. all mixed yeah, up yeah, just about in the 12. Those two, yeah. the, the sons of Zebedee, you know, and they're like power grab and all the stuff they've got going on, those two brothers. So, what is it we're doing? Uh, are we trying to put together now, like conservatism is built around, let's build this safe place where our persecuted narrative can hold forth. Is that what we're doing with Christian, with progressive communities? Is just creating places where that's just safe for only another group of people? Now, I said that more dismissively than I should have. That, that, that can be, that's fine. Go, go ahead and make one of those. But just know that that's what you're doing, if that's what you're doing. If you're doing something else where you're engaging in this more um, uh, inclusive community, then fair enough. And, and that's where all these terms run aground. What do we mean by progressive? What do we mean by emerging? What do we mean by deconstructing? Mm -hmm. What do we mean by progressive? What do we mean by inclusive? I may have said progressive. Twice. What, what do we mean by any of this stuff is, um, is, is proof in the pudding. And... Um, you know, I, I've found in my own life, I'm, it's not as interesting for me to be around the violent narrative Christian nationalist people. It's hard for me. Um, so I don't like it and I don't want to be around. I have Christian nationalist friends that are intentionally Christian nationalists, but they're not the violent type. Like they oppose the violence. But I also know some people who are kind of into that stuff. You know, they're mm -hmm. like, you know, they got they have basements full of survival stuff and they're taking training and they're going to gun... Uh, ranges and getting ready. I don't want to be around those people, but I also know you got to figure out why you just don't want to be around those people. Maybe that's the thing you should be working on. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. why am I, I feel like I'm using a pun here. Why am I triggered by all that? Well, there's, there's reasons. Yeah. And of course, I think, I think like I you still have, <laughs> you know, in a community, you still have boundaries and like you want it to be physically and emotionally safe for people that traditionally have been 
not safe in yeah. conservative spaces. So you don't sacrifice there, you don't compromise there, but up to that point, it's like, yeah, do they have to believe the same thing you do to be in your club? Do they have to be all the way there? Can they be, you know, open? And it, people are going to self-select, right? Like if they're going to sit through weeks of sermons and announcements and music that point to a more inclusive and generous way of doing things, if they're not open to that, they're not going to keep sitting through it. They're going to opt out. So yeah. yeah. And I also know a lot of people who believe in all that inclusiveness around the church, but when it comes to the country, they're like, but it's still a Christian country and it should be preferenced. <laughs> like, it drives you crazy, right? You're like, what? Yeah. Because they basically believe that the church is an open community and the government, the country is more like a health club that belongs to the members. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people do that with their churches that it belongs to the members. You know, I've been in churches where they're like, hey, to be a member here, you have to be baptized. Like, seriously? There's a thing you got to do first? Okay, well, oh, I mean, yeah. fair enough. It's a closed system. Got to sign a statement of belief. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or communion, you know, before, before you take communion somewhere, it's like you got to click on one of those uh, agreement tabs at the, uh, <laughs> you know, at the bottom to move off the page. Do you accept cookies? Do you, <laughs> accept, do you accept wafers? Do you uh, accept click here, cookies you know? and okay, Jesus yeah. as your Lord and Savior? <laughs> And wafers and juice or wafers and wine. Yeah, it it's, it, but but this is, look, and this is what it does. And this is what I hope. I hope that a conversation about Christian nationalism for Christian people, at least, especially church related Christian people, leads them into conversations about what kind of church are we? What kind of community are we? What kind of belief are we? What kind of religion do we hold to? Like that's where it should take you. It should lead you into those spaces, not be a standalone topic that you deal with. And now we're going to move on to climate change. And now we're going to move on to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, socialism. Now we're going to turn on to police violence. Now we're going to move on to, you know, a wage disparity. All things that really matter, but all of those conversations should also influence who and how we are. They're not independent topics. They're issues that matter to us that we need to find uh, new ways to, to engage in and to be part of. Boy, lots of comments in the in the comment string here, huh? Yeah, thanks everybody for hanging with us and being engaged. Thanks, Jim, Madison, Peggy, a lot of Madison, Rick, Dave, Eric, Dana, Hans, Judy, Tim, Giorgio. Yeah, and look, if you're not seeing all these comments, uh, it's because some are coming from Facebook, some are coming from YouTube. When we live stream these, it goes to all the places, and we use this software called Ecamm that allows us to see these coming from the variety of of, uh, of streams. So if you're wondering about that, uh, that's where they're coming from. I have a friend that only watches this on YouTube, which we would prefer. So if you want to go over to YouTube and watch it over there, um, because it, it just, it helps us in lots of ways. It helps our videos get more views over there. Um, nothing you do on Facebook helps us get more views. Like this is not how Facebook's <laughs> algorithm works. It's fine. It's great. So listen, to Facebook, that's good for you. But, yeah. But you know, yeah. if you also want to do something to help, uh, watch it over on, on YouTube. Um, and he said, you guys are always mentioning all these other people. Are you just making those up? <laughs> like, <laughs> I just dude, have a we phone were, book down here. And- <laughs> if we were making them up, there would be a lot. We wouldn't make up like eight. We'd make up like 80, you know? And thanks to the 700 of you that just made comments. Um, uh, no, we're not making it up. These are actual people that are that are writing things. And a couple bots. Actual people and a few bots. I think there might be a bot or two in our this current stream I'm seeing here. Yeah, but, Madison uh, is either a bot or a small child that got a hold of a typewriter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's tough to say. 
Hey, I, lo- I love this last question by Mike. Um, uh, and, and here's what I love about it, because any good conversation should open up a whole series of whatabouts, right? Uh, I, I love it. Uh, uh, what do you mean by religion? What do you mean by belief? What do you mean by reality or rational thought? Is religion <laughs> just a community of like-minded people who come from the same be- or belief similarly? Like, yeah, Mike, that's, see that, these are, and look, these aren't just like, one-off random questions on a live stream podcast. This is what leads to people believing in Christian nationalism. They're trying to answer those questions. What do we mean? What's the role? When when you're trained up or raised up in a system like Calvinism, let's say, which was invented by a 24-year-old named John Calvin, and the idea in that world is that there's there's these nation states that are forming and you want your nation state to hold to a particular belief. So you want Switzerland to be this Christian kind of place or whatever. And then your view of the world is the, is the, the city of God, not the kingdom of God, but the city of God. Then you want your nation to carry your Christian religion. So people that are into Calvinism are predisposed to a whole narrative that says there should be a city of God on the hill that's going to carry forth the work and the role of God. It was a bad idea from John Calvin, and it's a bad idea today. And um, I think the Christian gospel uh, gives us an alternative to that. It doesn't support that. Other people, obviously, Calvinism is kind of a big deal. John Calvin's, uh, you know, has uh, more influence than uh, certainly I do. So more people believe that stuff than you know uh, than, than I think should. So this is what's happening. The powers and the forces and the explanations of Christian nationalism are all over the place. Yeah, and is that enough for today? It's yeah, it's more than we can cover in one sitting. But that's why we're putting out a podcast series about it. <laughs> and that's why there's a podcast. And if you can't wait for the podcast, or you just love an hour and a half long, we have on our <laughs> YouTube channel our live trainings. Um, you can go watch those, so you can see this. You can watch video. It comes with video in it, and and. There's lots of content. And then on our website, there's curriculum that involves a whole lot of content that you can get for this. So there's a lot of curriculum, a lot of these resources available to you. You can find all that stuff over at votecommongood.com. You can find it over at uh, on our YouTube channel. And of course, on Facebook and uh, and and all the rest. <laughs> Look at Ken. Okay, <laughs> off Facebook and over to YouTube now. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Uh, <laughs> put a little note in there, Ken, with your address. We'll send you a, we'll send you a Vote Common Good button. We should start doing this. We'll just send people buttons and things and yeah. stuff. Uh, really, uh, make a comment. Hey, anybody, anybody still listening? Like, honest to goodness, how long have we been going, Dan? Hour and 15 minutes? Hour and 20 minutes? Yeah, hour 20. Hour 20. If uh, if you're still listening and you go over to YouTube and make a comment on this thing, we'll, we'll send you a button or a bumper sticker <laughs> or, a, I don't know, maybe somebody will get a hat. Uh, we'll just, we'll just send you stuff. So, so, so give your, uh, I don't know what you do. Give, give your details over there and uh, and then we'll, you know, email us at info at votecommongood.com with your address. I was going to tell yeah. you to put your address there, but don't do that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ken says, uh, can I send the address privately? Okay, Ken, yes. Now, if Ken, you would just, just post uh, publicly your address and credit card information might be helpful too. Uh, I was just kidding. Yeah, mom's maiden name, you know, just the simple things. Uh, last four social. Uh, the uh, Email us at uh, info at votecommongood.com or if there's a place over there where you can message privately or any of these other places uh, we'll send you a button and all that stuff you know just for being a just for being a new YouTuber with us any of you head over there we, we'll, we'll start doing that for the for the insiders on this conversation yeah. alright y'all is that good? that's great alright tomorrow we'll uh, do a deep dive on <laughs> 
the debt ceiling the and whatever it means ceiling. and how the economy works. Yeah. So, all right. See you then. Take care.